The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel, where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our way of leading. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God commanded man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth, to be fruitful and multiply in ideas and influence, and to cultivate the garden, making sense of the earth around them, subduing and replenishing it for His glory. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because this world needs you right now. No matter who you are or where you find yourself, it's my deep prayer that as you listen, meditate, become courageous to act, and go deeper in your walk with God, some of you just at the beginning of that journey, that you will be changed back into the original image and likeness in which you were created. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and share. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So we're going to be in Luke's Gospel this evening, and I want to start just by giving a little bit of background so that we can have some context to understand perhaps why Luke writes his particular gospel in the way that he does. So we know that Luke was a Gentile. Luke was not of the Jewish tradition. He was not of the Jewish faith. Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Tradition says that he came from Antioch. And so scholars believe that he was one of those who um, were converted in Antioch when Paul and Barnabas and all of the other leaders of the early church were building and establishing the church in Antioch. We also know that Luke was a physician, so he had a medical training. He did not walk with Jesus. He was not one of the disciples. He was not one of the twelve. We know that Luke was rather a close companion of Paul, and so Luke's gospel and Luke's story is very much tied to Paul's story. And Luke used to actually be a frequent travel companion of Paul's. When Paul writes about his sicknesses and his illnesses, his infirmities, scholars believe that it was the good physician Luke who attended to him. And when Paul actually signs off on some of his epistles and he says that indeed the good physician was with us, many scholars believe that he's referring to Luke. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Luke was burdened, even though he wasn't one of the twelve, he was burdened by the Holy Spirit to record another gospel. At that time, Mark's account, we know, that was written by or, or dictated by Peter to John Mark, that was already in circulation. Matthew's account was already in circulation. And so Luke actually used those documents as the basis of his gospel, but he also, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and because of his medical training, actually went around and ran interviews with some of the surviving 
people. We know that he interviewed Mary, and that's how he got those details about Mary's story and Jesus' birth that do not appear in Matthew or Mark's gospel. And so Luke was a physician. Luke was a, had great research skills, and he writes almost like a historian. So Luke's gospel gives us a lot of detail and a lot of information that we don't find in the other gospels, which is so useful to us. Luke records 20 miracles that Jesus performed. He records 23 parables that Jesus spoke. Some of them which do appear in Mark and Matthew's gospel, but many of them which are new. And Luke gives special attention to prayer. When you read the gospel of Luke, you read frequently how Jesus prayed. And you get that perspective of prayer which we don't get in the other gospels. Luke writes at length about the Holy Spirit. His, his gospel has almost a supernatural tone to it, and, and he carries this over into his account in the book of Acts as well. Very, very different from Matthew and Mark's gospel. But the important point to note about Luke is that Luke was writing for the Greek mindset. Because Luke was a Gentile, his interpretation of who Jesus was and the significance to humanity was a very, very different one. Luke did not approach Jesus from the same perspective that the disciples, the 12, did, that, um, that Peter did, that Matthew did, because Luke did not have the scrolls and the stories and the tradition of the law and prophets as, as his culture growing up. So when he writes his gospel, he's writing very much to a people who are like him, people who have a, a Hellenistic or a Greek way of thinking, people who were strangers to the nation of Israel. And so as Luke is writing, he writes about Jesus as being the savior of the world. We find that other gospels paint this picture of Jesus as being the son of man, or Jesus as being the son of David, or Jesus as being the, the Messiah who was, who was prophesied of in the old prophets. But when Luke writes, he writes about Jesus as being the savior of the world, the total world. And that world includes women, it includes the poor, it includes outcasts. And so that's why we find so many of the stories that Luke writes that speak to us about how Jesus was with the women, how Jesus was with the poor, how Jesus was with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Because Luke wants us to understand that this Jesus is, has come for everyone. This is the Jesus who is the savior of the total world. So if that is our background, if that is what we understand about why Luke had to write this particular gospel, then the next question for us, if we are still on our month of stewardship, we want to understand then what are the special insights that Luke gives us on stewardship. And when we read his gospel, particularly from the chapters 14 to 17, we see various examples and parables of how Jesus considers this topic of stewardship. And so we're going to start towards the end of these four chapters, these three chapters, and then we're going to work our way backwards to understand what I mean. And so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus is speaking, and he says, 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. So let us pray. Abba Father, we thank you so much once again for allowing us to come before you. Holy Spirit, I thank you for tonight's teaching. I thank you for the exploration of it, and I thank you for the preparation of it. And Lord, even as you've given us this word, which is in season, I pray that nothing will distract from us hearing really what you want us to understand about stewardship in this context, in this time, in the situations that we find ourselves in. Lord, this word speaks directly to where we are, which is why you have sent it. And I pray, Lord, that this word would find fertile ground this evening, that it would find souls that are ready to receive this word, souls that are ready to cultivate this word, souls, Lord, that are willing to receive your watering of this word, that it would bear fruit in their lives. Father, I pray for each and every person gathered here this evening, those who are here, those on their way coming, and those who will hear this message in the future. Let it meet them, Lord, exactly where you, you know that they are, and let it take them, Lord, exactly where you want them to go. I thank you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. So tonight we are asking the question, whose steward are you? Whose steward are you? Because you see, the quality of your stewardship will be affected not only by how well you steward, but it will also be affected by the one to whom you steward. And when we look at our text this evening, Jesus is saying that you cannot be steward to two masters effectively, that you will end up shortchanging one or the other. So let me now read this passage. I told you that Jesus was speaking here, but let's read the full passage so that we can find ourselves in the text and understand a little bit why he said this to the masses. The multitude were traveling with him at this point, and this is one of the things that he explains to them. So it, this, what he's giving us tonight is not a secret. It's not a conversation that was simply uh, reserved for his 12. When we go all the way back to the chapter 15, it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured. So everyone is there. The outcasts are there. The tax collectors are there. The prostitutes are there. The sinners are there. Those who were not regarded are there. But as usual, the Pharisees are are hanging around, they want to see what Jesus is going to say, what he's going to do, so that they can, they can take an issue with him, they can write down another accusation against him. And so this is the context in which he tells this story. And then when chapter 16 opens up, he says also unto his disciples, he says, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him, that he had wasted all his goods. Let me switch to the NIV since I'm reading at length and I want you to understand what I'm saying. Then Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. 
So the manager called the steward and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I know what I will do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So the manager called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, the man replied. The manager told him, quick, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. So cut it in half. Then the manager asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, the man replied. The manager told him, take your bill and make it 800. So he cut off 100, uh, he cut off 200 from the top. Now the master comes back. Verse eight says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And here comes the verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so that is Jesus' warning to us. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And so we want to understand whose steward are you? Now, when we look at the Greek, the Greek word for master is the word kurios. And another word for kurios, other than master, is the term possessor. And so when I'm asking you, whose steward are you? When I'm asking you, who is your master? I'm effectively asking you, who is your possessor? What possesses you? This helps us to understand Jesus's point because you can only be owned by one possessor at a time. You can only be possessed by one thing at a time. There's nothing like co-ownership or co-possession. And in the text, Jesus is presenting us with two particular masters and he juxtaposes them. The one master is God. The other master is mammon. And in the King James, the term mammon is used. And in the NIV and in other more modern translations, the term money is used. Now, when we go back to the Aramaic, we go back to the ancient language, even though in our King James, the term mammon is used, it's used with a small m. So it's presented as an inanimate object, as a noun. 
But it's important for us to understand that in the Aramaic, the word mammon actually symbolized the personification or the deification, so the making a god out of wealth, avarice, greed, possessions, earnings, gains that one serves if he doesn't serve God. What that means is, it means two things. The first thing it means, if we just speak about wealth, it means that there is a wealth that comes from God. There's a wealth for the one who serves God. And we know that because Proverbs and, and Deuteronomy tell us that God takes pleasure in the prosperity of his people and that God grants the power to get wealth. So we know that there's a prosperity, a wealth that comes from God. That's not what we're speaking about when we speak about mammon. In, in the ancient cultures, in Babylonian culture and other cultures, mammon was a god. He was, he, he was the personification or the deification of worldly wealth, of greed, of avarice, of possessions. And so tonight I'm going to be speaking about mammon as this personification. I'm not going to be speaking about the object money. And to help me do that, I'm turning to an essay written by an American theologian and author named Marva Dawn. And I find that the way that she writes about mammon is very helpful to us. What she's going to explain to us is that mammon is actually one of the principalities. So when we're speaking about the powers and principalities that we wrestle against, against rulers of the darkness and uh, those seated in high places, Mammon is one of those principalities, and so it's helpful for us to understand this. So let me read an extract from her essay. Dawn writes, As one example of the correlation of spiritual forces requiring human agency to operate, let us consider money. Certainly, the power that mammon holds over us is not due to demons flying around and operating all by themselves. The spiritual authority of mammon needs human cooperation. On the other hand, the material reality of money is not sufficient to explain its compulsion. As mentioned above, money certainly doesn't possess the kind of power it has merely by being a piece of paper. So what Dawn is explaining here is, is that the force of money is not because money is an inanimate object. It's not because it's coins or cowrie shells or pieces of paper. That's not the power of money. There is a principality behind money, and that principality's name is mammon. But the way money works for us, and, and here you can substitute money for any kind of worldly wealth, any kind of worldly gain or possession, the way these objects work is that they need humans to interact with them. So money does not have power simply because it's a piece of paper or because it's coins. Money does not have power simply because it is backed by a principality. Money has power 
because it is backed by a principality who needs humankind to interact with it. And that's where the force or the draw of money backed by mammon gets its power. So then Dawn goes on and she now begins to quote another theologian named Jacques Ellul. And she quotes Ellul to say this, this term power should be understood not in its vague meaning force, but in the specific sense in which it is used in the New Testament. Power is something that acts by itself, is capable of moving other things, is autonomous or claims to be, is a law unto itself and presents itself as an active agent. This is the first characteristic. Its second is that power has a spiritual value. It is not only of the material world, although this is where it acts. It has spiritual meaning and direction. Power is never neutral. It is oriented. It also orients people. Finally, power is more or less personal. And just as death often appears in the Bible as a personal force, so here is with money. Money is not a power because man uses it, because it is the means of wealth or because accumulating money makes things possible. Money is a power before all of that. And those exterior signs are only the manifestations of this power which has or claims to have a reality of its own. We absolutely must not minimize the parallel Jesus draws between God and mammon. He is not using a rhetorical figure, but he is rather pointing out a reality. God as a person and mammon as a person find themselves in conflict. Jesus describes the relation between us and one or the other the same way. It is the relationship between servant and master. Mammon can be a master the same way God is. That is, mammon can be a personal master. And let me just read this final paragraph. Jesus is not describing a relationship between us and an object, but between us and an active agent. He's not suggesting that we use money wisely or earn it honestly. He is speaking of a power which tries to be like God, which makes itself our master and which has specific goals. Wow. So if we understand that's what mammon is, that's who mammon is, then this scripture in chapter 16, verse 13 of the Gospel of Luke, that no one can serve two masters, for he's going to love one or hate the other, or he's going to cling to one and despise the other, that you cannot serve God and mammon. You either serve God or you serve mammon. And mammon is not the money, which is an object which has no value or no power. It is the agency that interacts with you that is backed by this principality called mammon. And so this now, if we, if we accept all that I've just read, this now helps us to understand the Apostle Paul when he writes to his son Timothy and he warns Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and this is a scripture that gets misquoted and misrepresented all the time. 
chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, Paul writes, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So, first of all, money is not the root of all evil. And we know that. We know that, okay, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. But we need to read verses 9 and 10 together. That Paul is not saying it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. He's saying that there's a temptation when you begin to seek after. Money will, will, will entrap you in its snare. Because remember, Don said, quoting Elul, that money has aims of its own. Mammon has his own aims. As a master, mammon has his own aims. So he will use money or any kind of worldly wealth, possession, gains to ensnare. And we often see this in the rich. But that destruction and that perdition comes not simply by following the money, but, and not simply by coveting after or lusting after the money. But what happens is that you err from the faith. That's what the verse 10 says when we read after the, the semicolon. The colon says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. But then there's a colon. And then the point is, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. So the real sin here is erring from the faith. And that leads you to pierce yourself through with many sorrows, with destruction, with perdition. Coming back to the point that Mammon as a master has his own goals, different from the goals that God as a master has. So to our question this evening on stewardship, we want to know, we want to understand that if we are going to be effective stewards, good stewards, that is related not simply to our capacities to steward, but it also relates to who are we stewarding for? In other words, who is our master? And when we return now back to chapter 16 in Luke, Jesus now continues his teaching and he actually tells us what Paul has just said to Timothy. Jesus gives it to us in another story. And here we see the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I just want to read it um, because we know the story, but let us read it so that we can just hear it again. Jesus tells this story. What's interesting here is that there are some scholars who think that this actually was not a parable of Jesus's. It wasn't just a, um, uh, an, an, an analogy of a story. Some scholars actually believe that Jesus was telling a story. He was telling the tale of a real man who lived and this real Lazarus. And that's why Lazarus is named. So that's up for debate, but here's the story in the verse 19 of chapter 16. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died 
and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony here in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set into place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he replied. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Hallelujah. So interesting story. Interesting story. There's a few things that we need to note about this story. Yes, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. And the rich man goes to Hades and the poor man goes to Abraham's bosom. Is the point of this story as Jesus is giving it to his listeners simply that the rich will go to hell and the poor will go to heaven? It's not so simple. We're speaking about whose master, whose steward are you? Who is your master? So what can we see about who the rich man was a steward unto and who Lazarus was a steward unto? What makes the rich man wicked in this story? Because in the King James, I think he's actually called wicked. What makes him wicked is not the fact that he was rich. What makes him wicked is the fact that he didn't share his riches. We see that he sat in luxury every day. He was dressed in purple, fine linens. So he was a man of great social standing. He might even have been of royal stock. But he never eases Lazarus's suffering. The curious thing about this story is, is that when the man sees Lazarus standing beside Abraham, he calls him by name. First of all, he's even able to recognize him. He's able to recognize him as the beggar who used to sit at his gates, the beggar whom he never fed. He didn't even give the leftovers or the crumbs, the beggar who even his dogs used to go and lick the sores of this poor beggar. But in all that, the rich man somehow knew Lazarus's name. So he was acquainted enough for, with him to know his name, and yet he never gave him anything. That's the source of his wickedness. That's the source of him serving his master, Mammon. And so the rich man finds himself in Hades. 
Now, what's the context of this teaching? I started off by telling you that we are in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel that has quite a lot of material to give us in terms of understanding stewardship. And tonight we are in chapters 14 all the way to chapters 17. So three good, long, chunky, meaty chapters. And we see that in these chapters, Jesus is actually doing a lot of teaching. All of these stories take place around some kind of food. So when we start in chapter 14, there's a banquet. Jesus has been invited or he finds himself at the banquet table of one of the prominent Pharisees. And then Jesus gives a, a, a parable of the great banquet. And then in chapter 15, we see that the crowds are still surrounding Jesus. And chapter 15 is where Jesus gives us the triple parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And then chapter 16, where we have started this evening, is where Jesus warns us about stewardship and that no one can be a steward to two masters. You can never be effective that way because there's no such thing as shared ownership of the steward. You either belong totally to your one master or you belong totally to the other master. And we understand from reading Marva Dawn that those masters are in conflict, that God and mammon have different goals. And so the way that we steward what they give us affects our stewardship, not just in terms of our capacity to steward, but also in the character of who our master is. So as we keep working our way backwards, let's now come back, move backwards to the chapter 15, because we want to understand what's the context of this teaching. And I mentioned that the Pharisees, as usual, were always hanging around. They wanted to know what Jesus was doing next, not so that they could be changed by the word, not so that they could repent and return to the Father, but really to entrap him. And so we see that in these parables, in these passages, Jesus is speaking to the attitude of the Pharisees. And what we see the Pharisees doing is they, they, they are sneering at him. When he speaks, they kind of throw off his the point of his parables. They know that he's speaking to them. And yet somewhere it says that they sneer at him. If you've ever seen someone sneer at you, you know how ugly that face is. Some translations actually say that that statement, that idiom, actually means they blew their noses on him. Like they, they, they were deriding what he was saying. So this teaching about stewardship and understanding who, whose steward you are, it takes us back. Before we go to the chapter 15, let me just pause and return to something very important in the chapter 16. So where Jesus gives this statement about not being able to serve two masters after he's given this story about this particular kind of steward. 
In some of our translations, he's called the unjust steward. We want to understand actually a little bit about this steward, why, why Jesus uses him as an example, and why the master actually commends the steward in, in the story. So in this parable of the shrewd steward, we see that though the steward cheated his master, because that's what he does, right? He, the, the master has heard a bad report of the steward. We don't know whether the steward was lazy, we don't know whether he just uh, whether he was embezzling, whether he was cheating. We don't know whether he was doing his own business on the side. We don't know what it was about this steward. All we know is that the master has received a bad report, and so the master comes and he takes account, because we know from other parables that Jesus Jesus gives on stewardship that the master will always show up for an accounting. And so in this case, the master shows up and says, what is this that I've heard about your stewardship? And the steward begins to fret in himself. He says, oh boy, I'm gonna be out of a job. If my master throws me out, what am I going to do? I'm not strong to dig, I can't dig ditches. I have too much pride to beg. So how am I going to eat? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get those who owe my master, I'm going to do them a favor by cutting their bills. And because I've done this good thing for them in their eyes, they will welcome me when I'm on the street. And so the master commends the steward. He says, well done. Well, no, 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 the master doesn't say well done. The master says, not bad. I mean, pretty, 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 pretty clever. Pretty clever. Um, yeah. And what the master says is then that these people, and this is what I want us to understand, because this passage is actually a very tricky one. It's a very slippery one. It's one that we often can't understand and is one that is often not well explained to us. Why does the steward get a commendation even though what he does is wrong? And here there are two keys in this passage. The first comes to us from the Greek. In the Greek, the word that gets used there for wisdom, if I read from the King James, I just want to read this passage because it says that the master commends him for being wise in the verse eight. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Now that might confuse us. It confuses us only in English. In the Greek, we understand that the word that gets used there for wisely or for wisdom is the Greek word phronimos. Now phronimos is a different word from the other Greek word that gets used for wisdom, which we're much more familiar with, which is the word sophos. That's where we get the word sophia from. So when we're speaking about God's wisdom, we're speaking about sophia. But this Greek word is the word phronimos. The difference between the two is that both of them refer to one using one's intelligence and one's means to accomplish something. The difference comes in the ends that those that, that intelligence and those means are being used for. When the term phronimos is being used, it is used when the end 
to be accomplished is either good or evil. When sophos is being used, it is used only when the thing that will be accomplished is good. So when the master is commending the steward here, he's saying that he has done phronimos. He's not saying that he has done sophos. So what he's saying is, you used your cleverness and you used the means that you had to achieve something. And that thing was either good or evil. In this case, we can conclude that it was evil. But had the scriptures said that he had done sophos, then we would know that the end to be accomplished was good. Why am I emphasizing this point? I'm emphasizing this point, number one, because I want us to be reminded that since the fall, we now know both good and evil. And so in our souls, since we know both good and evil, our intellect, which makes up part of our souls, because remember, our souls are made up of our intellect, our emotions, and our will. So when we use that intellect to achieve an end, since we know both good and evil, our end that we choose can be both good or evil. But the second point is, is that what we set out to accomplish will be determined by our master, will be determined by our possessor, will be determined by God, if he is indeed our master, or mammon, if he is indeed our master. And understanding that, then we know that this steward was not a steward unto God. This steward was a steward unto mammon because he was using his wits to yield him an end which was good for him. He didn't want to be homeless. He wanted to eat, but what was, which was evil. It was manipulating the people to cheat their bills so that they would favor him. But that ended up going against the master. And this is why reading the NIV in this case is important because the English actually says in the verse eight, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind. And this is what I want us to see here. We don't see it in the King James, but the point is not to cheat. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying use your intellect or your skills or your capacities to do evil. What he's saying is, is that this particular steward, steward knew how to deal with his own kind. He knew how to deal with the people who were phronimos like him. If the people had been godly, they would not have allowed the master to be cheated. The man who owed 900 gallons of olive oil would have said, mm, even though I'm in debt and even though, even though it's going to take me a long time to pay off this debt, I'm not going to cheat the master. The one who owed 1,000 bushels would have said the same thing, but they were all more than happy to cut their bills in half knowing that they would owe the steward down the line. And they were happy to, yeah, if he needs food, yeah, if he needs a place to stay, yeah, if he needs another job, fine. But they were doing that at the cost of the master, meaning that they too were stewards not of God, but of mammon. Because their, their means, they are being motivated by worldly possessions. 
And so this is the trick of this passage. But now that we see this, it helps us to understand why Jesus goes on to say that if you know, because he's saying that the, the children of this world know how to do that. They know how to be shrewd amongst their own kind. They can do that better than the children of light can. But then Jesus says that, fine, what you need to do as a, as a, as a steward of the master is you need to learn how to use, how to steward the worldly wealth, but do that in such a way that you will then be welcomed into the eternal dwellings. Why? Because if you are trustworthy with a little, God will trust you with much. And that's what we see in the other parables, the parables of the talents and the minas, that those who stewarded the master's talents or minas that he gave him well, that they were put in charge of cities, that they were doubled what they had invested. And so what we can conclude is that this steward, this wicked steward, because he was not trustworthy with the master's possessions, with the master's worldly possessions. The master commends him for his shrewdness. He commends him for his phronomos. But this steward is not rewarded because whoever is trusted with a little will also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So we don't know the conclusion. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to the steward. But I'm quite sure that he was not rewarded from the master the way those other stewards that we see in the parable of the talents and the minas were. This is why Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon. The steward in this story is serving mammon. The people who let their bills be cut into two are serving mammon. But Jesus, he doesn't say this, he doesn't say this in, the, in the passage, but this is the ultimate question. Whose steward are you? Who are you serving? Are you serving God or are you serving mammon? Are you stewarding the things of God in, the in a godly manner or are you stewarding the things of mammon in a mammon-like manner? And if we turn to Matthew 24, verse 45, Jesus answers this question. He says, who then is a good and faithful servant? He says, who then is a faithful and wise servant, faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find doing so. Verily, verily, I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For good measure, let me just read this in the Matthew, um, in the NIV. Let me just turn there. But I think you see the point. Jesus is giving us the description of who then is the faithful and the wise servant. It's the one who remains on duty. It's the one who feeds the other servants. 
It's the one who continues to stand and wait. We don't know when the master is coming back. But this is what Jesus says. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, the master will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the point that Jesus wants us to know. The question, whose steward are you? Are you a steward unto God or are you a steward unto mammon? Last parable, and now we jump back to the chapter 15. And this is the parable of the lost son. What's interesting about this parable is that oftentimes we refer to this story as the story of the prodigal son because we know that he was prodigal. He was wasteful with the inheritance that his father gave him. But actually in the Bible, he is, the parable is referred to as the parable of the lost son. So the Bible wants us to know that the distinguishing feature of this man was not that he was prodigal, but that he was lost. And for the sake of time, I won't read it, but I'll encourage you to go tonight. You should actually read all of chapter 15. We need to understand these three parables together because they belong together. Jesus is building his argument when he moves from the sheep to the coin to the sun. So read the whole chapter. It's only 32 verses. But in the last part, the story is the story of this, these two brothers of a rich man, and the younger brother says, Dad, I want my share of the inheritance. Dad gives it to him. He goes off to a far land, and he has a loose life. He eats, he drinks, he carouses with women, and then the money finishes, and then there's a famine, an economic drought in the land. So this young, younger brother becomes the servant. He becomes a steward of a man in that nation. And we know that he's fallen on, on hard times. The younger brother is not, he has nothing. So much so that when he looks at the pigs, and we can understand that if this story is being told in the Jewish tradition, that to look at pigs and to desire what they are eating would have been through the lowest of the low, that this guy had fallen through the bottom because, of course, pigs were unclean animals. But to look at the pigs and to want the slops, the leftovers that they were eating because he was that hungry, he was that desperate, until the Bible says he came to his senses and he remembers that I have a father and I can go back to my father's house. And even though I may no longer be worthy to be called his son, I can at least hope to be a servant because even his servants are treated well. So that gives us a picture of the difference between being the steward of a good master and being the steward of 
a bad master. So this son goes home and we know that he's welcomed with loving arms and a, and a banquet because he was once lost, but he is now found. He comes to his senses and he is now found. So even the lost son was for a time a steward of mammon when he found himself in that foreign country with no money left, no name left, nowhere to stay. And he had to attach himself to this unnamed master who treated him so badly that even sleeping in the pig pen, but not even being given the food that the, the pigs were being given. This young man found himself a servant, a steward of mammon. But the Bible says that he comes to his senses and he returns home to be a steward of his father. And even when he goes home, the Bible tells us that the father doesn't begrudgingly say, fine, you made some bad choices, but I'll let you be a steward. No, he says, you are my son and you were lost, but now you are found. So as we conclude this evening, we're in our month of stewardship and we want to understand what does it mean to be a steward? What does it mean to be a steward unto God? We had a bit of a perhaps surprising teaching this evening and I enjoyed it so much because when I prepare, it's always an exploration. I never really know where we're going to end up and that's always the sign to me that the Holy Spirit is leading. So I was a bit shocked actually that this was the message for this evening. But the question for us as stewards, maybe first the statement and then the question. The statement is, is that if we are going to be good stewards, if we are going to be good and faithful stewards, if we are going to be good and wise and faithful stewards, then we have to understand that our stewardship is not simply tied to our capacity to steward, our willingness to steward, our desire to be holy, our desire to be um, to have attention to detail, our, our desire to persevere, but our ability to steward has a direct link to the one who is our master. Whether we call him master or not, how we behave, the things that we do, will show us who our true master is, will show us who our true possessor is, the thing that is possessing you. Is it God that is possessing you or is it mammon? And I know that that might be a terrifying prospect. And if we can be honest with ourselves, we will compare ourselves to the scripture when Jesus says, well, who then is the good steward, the good and wise, the faithful and wise steward? It's the steward who's standing at the gate. It's the steward who is feeding the other stewards. It's the steward who's making sure that everything is going on in the master's household. Everything's going on in the church. Everything's going on in the kingdom. Just as the master set out his instructions to before he left. And we don't know when he's coming back. But if we are going to be faithful and wise, we have to stand at the gate listening for his car because it could be turning the corner any moment making sure that the other servants remain, the other stewards remain motivated, that they're fed on time, that the work of the kingdom is ongoing. So as I'm closing this evening, I'm asking you, whose steward are you? And I pray that you will have the 
courage to answer this question. And I pray that you will ask God that wherever you find yourself falling short of being his steward, that he will increase you and enhance you for his glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.